Good day, friends. This is Reiko Zek. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. Today is day 41. It's a, a good day of reading. We'll reflect on Exodus 30 and 31 and Matthew 26, the arrest of Jesus. And we can't miss out on Psalm 32, the blessing of the forgiveness that God gives. So let's jump right in and take a look at the uh, Exodus chapter 30. We start with this uh, it's a little odd, a census tax. It is really a tax on anyone that will be counted, that will be age 20 or above, and that is anyone who is able to go to war. That's from Numbers chapter 1. It is an atonement. It is it is something that will be given. Now, later on, uh, the counting the people, the census will be called a sin. David, King David, will be tempted to do this, and it says that he was incited to sin, in other words, tempted to sin by counting the people. So I'm not sure what it is, but later on, the this counting, or at least this uh, this giving of money towards the the temple or towards the tent of meeting, was given to support that work that's done there. And it's a serious thing. We see Jesus fulfill this in Matthew chapter 17. Remember that whole um, he is asked. Uh, well, actually, Peter is asked, "Hey." by the Levites, these guys who are collecting this tax, say, does your master pay the tax? And he's like, well, yeah, of course he does. And, and then Peter goes in the house, and Jesus already asks, hey, do those, uh, who, who, who pays the tax? The, the citizens or the, the, the princes? And obviously, it's, it's, not the, it's not the princes. Jesus says, you are a prince, you are free, but for the sake of not offending, we'll pay it. So this was a temporary thing, and it was meant... To, up, to keep up the temple, uh, and Jesus fulfills it. It's a little confusing. Anyway, we won't spend too much time on it. We also have a couple of other things that prefigure our experience. We have this bronze basin, and this was between the altar and the, the tent of meeting in the courtyard. It was not meant for everyone, but it's a whole lot like um, the baptismal washing, the baptismal font that we experience. Interesting later on that converts to Judaism, converts to to the faith, they would be washed, whether it be in a bronze basin or in the desert in, you know, a low spot uh, where they could gather water, a baptismal or a baptistry. So this prefigures that. And then there's recipes, holy recipes for anointing oil and also for incense. And this is what the priests are to use. And they're to make this exact recipe for anointing oil. And interesting, you know, this is everything it touches, it, it makes holy. And not not just any, it says not any ordinary person is to have this. This is exactly the same word, this anointing oil, the, the name, it, it means being set apart. And it also later on talks about God's spirit is, is along with this anointing. And this is, this anointing is the same name we have for our Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the one who was set apart for us. And along with um, the name Christ or anointed one comes who he is and what he does, uh, the one who comes to save. And in our baptism, um, we, we take up this christening. We are, we have a christening. It says this in many places, First John definitely tells us this, that in Christ we are also christened. We are set apart in him. And then it talks about this very specific recipe for incense. 
I don't even know what these things are. Stacti, Onica, Galbanum. I haven't seen a whole lot of that, so I don't think I can make this. But it was to to accompany the prayers of the priests and, and of the people. And you weren't supposed to just fool around with this. This was serious business, as we've said before. Two of two of Aaron's sons are killed for messing around with this, for having an unauthorized fire. In other words, unauthorized incense. So this is serious. And again, this incense is a is a symbol of the prayers of the saints. We could say the prayers of Christ for us. All right, so that, then we see um, chapter 31. Isn't this cool? There is spirit-filled craftsmen. There are these men, it starts, it starts with uh, Bezalel. Bezalel? Bezalel, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever his name is. It says that God says that I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. It's pretty cool. He has he he has this the Spirit of God, and what does he do with it? He doesn't preach. He doesn't teach. He makes. He's an artist. He's a craftsman, which is really cool. And then it says that he has a comrade. <clears throat> His comrade is um, Ohaliab. Ohaliab. Yeah, that's. It's a pretty cool name. And then it also talks about other men that God gives ability to. And then we come to another teaching on the Sabbath. The Lord says that you are to tell the people, above all, you're to keep my Sabbaths. And I think that the people, in, at least at, in Jesus' day, this is they took this seriously. They, they wanted to keep the Sabbath and all the rules that went along with the Sabbath. But I think that they kind of got distracted. They thought the verbs applied mostly to themselves and not so much to the Lord. Take a look here. The Sabbath is to be a sign between God and his people so that they might know that, as it says, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Who's doing the verbs here? Is it the people sanctifying themselves? No. The Sabbath is so that we might know that the Lord sanctifies us. And it goes on and says that the Sabbath is holy for you. That means that God is doing this. God has the one who has made it holy. And as it goes on, it says that um, it's a day of solemn rest. This is a gift. Sabbath is a gift, even in our day. Even if we don't, now in the new covenant, we are not obligated to keep this a particular day of Sabbath. You can read about that in Romans 14, some choose one day, some another, and we're free to do that. And, and in fact, the Christians chose to begin worshiping on, on Sunday rather than Sabbath. Regardless, uh, it says that it's a day of solemn rest. It's a day that is both solemn and a day of rest. And here in this time, it's very, very strict consequences. It says that those who break it, don't keep it, shall be cut off or put to death. Wow. Um, they wanted to, God wanted people to take it seriously. The other thing God wants is so that to reflect creation, six days of creation and a day of rest. And of course, God did not need rest. He did this to teach us. But we do need rest. And so the seventh day we are to rest and be refreshed. I love that, especially in the New Testament, the book of Acts, the, uh, the apostles are preaching that Christ came to give times of refreshing to the people, uh, to all the to all the people. So it's good news. All right. So that's 
that's some of the Old Testament things. All these things God has been telling Moses on the mountain, all the ways that he has come to uh, cover their sins and to dwell with them and be with them. And it requires holiness. And this holiness comes through the work of God. The people, they've got to show up and, and hear and trust God that in in the sacrifices that he is going to make them holy in in the day of Sabbath rest, they will learn of them. So this is God's work. Now, the crazy thing is, is all the while while God is telling Moses this, there's a reason he's telling them they, they need a way to be forgiven is because even down the mountain, they are committing idolatry, which we'll get to tomorrow with Exodus 32. All right, so let's flip over to Matthew. We have some weighty and heavy things to ponder. We pick up and it's middle of the night, it's dark, it's the garden, and the whole the whole great crowd with swords and clubs come, with Judas of all people, one of the apostles, bringing this crowd. It's crazy, isn't it? And he's a betrayer. He's handing him over. And how does he hand him over? By kissing Jesus. How low is that? Wow. And Jesus says to him, friend, do what you came to do. Another way to say that is buster or buddy. This is the same word for friend that shows up in uh, the, the parable, uh, two other parables. Uh, the parable of uh, the, the guy who says, I, I couldn't trust you. Uh, you're a hard man. Uh, it also shows up in the parable where the guy is at the wedding feast and he's not clothed right. And, um, and the master, or the king says to him, hey, friend or buster, you could have asked for any clothing. You didn't ask. Um, so you got to go out. Anyways, that, that is the use here of, of Judas friend. It is a friend, but it's, a, it's not a close comrade. Anyway, this friend betrays Jesus. And it says one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the other Gospels, especially John, this is this other one uh, is Peter. Peter drew his sword. And we know from Luke that, that Jesus is frustrated that they even have swords. But it's almost like they have swords because Jesus is going to show that um, in their own strength, they're not going to be able to accomplish the salvation of God. Anyway, Peter missed. He, he goes to, he doesn't try to cut off the guy's ear. He's trying to cut off his head. And even in that, he misses Peter uh, is told, stop it, knock it off. Don't try to protect me with the sword. Don't you know that I could call on my father right now and he would send me 12 legions of, of angels? And what that is in heaven, we don't know, but a legion in Rome was about 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus could have instantly called down 72,000 angels. You know, obviously, it's the heat of the moment. He could have called down a million angels. Whatever, we know from First Chronicles, Second Second Chronicles, Second Kings, chapter six, Elisha is there with his servant, and and uh, he prays to God. Elisha prays to God and says, "Show show my servant so that he has that he can trust." And so he sees the the hillsides covered with with the angels of God, with the host of heaven, and he sees it for a moment that which truly is, and. Elisha says to him, there are more who are with us than there are with them. And that's true here too. Jesus is surrounded by the holy angels. And at any moment he could have called on them, called on his father to send them. But instead he knows that the scriptures need to be fulfilled. 
we could think of many scriptures of Christ needing to, to suffer for us, to atone for our sins. All the things we've been reading about in Exodus, all those sacrifices will be fulfilled by this one sacrifice that he will make. So anyway, we'll move on. Jesus is then, it doesn't say this here, but in, in the Gospel of John, he first goes, he's taken captive and he goes to a guy's house named Annas who was the previous high priest and who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then it says in John that he is taken from there to Caiaphas's house bound. So he's already taken, when he goes to Caiaphas's house, he's already tied up. They already, they already have his plan to kill him. This is something they've been conspiring for a long time. And so the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council is there. And these are very important people. There's 71 of these, of these men. And they gather in the middle of the night. And they, they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Uh, but they couldn't find any. So uh, this is an illegal trial. Why is it illegal? Well, these guys do have authority from Rome to hold trial on religious matters. So that's not a big deal. Every day they're in the temple doing this. But there's at least two reasons why this is wrong. One, it was against their rules to have a trial at night. Nothing good happens past 10 p.m., right? The other thing is that uh, this is a capital, they turn it into a capital trial, you know, a matter of life and death. And so all the capital cases were held in the temple and in public, Anybody could be there to listen in on the trial. So they violate their own standards because they know that they don't care what their standards are. They want to get rid of this guy. They're afraid of, of they're afraid that he is, as they're going to, to commit, as they're going to end up saying that he's a blasphemer. So anyway, they misquote, there's at least some witnesses who come and say, um, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, this is a mishearing of John chapter 2. Jesus didn't say, I, I will destroy this temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, right? This, he's talking about not the temple that has been, you know, being built by the king Herod, but he's referring to his body. So they misunderstand what he says in John chapter 2. Anyway, they end up, the, he, Jesus is not answering them. And so the high priest, he's angry. And so he says, I adjure you by the living God. In other words, I am putting you, I command you by oath to speak. Tell us if you are the anointed one, the Christ. Tell us if you are the son of God. So Jesus said to him, you have said so. And I always wonder, why didn't Jesus just say, yes, uh, he inasmuch does. He says, yep, what you've said is true. And so it's sort of just a figure of speech. In English, it comes across as if he's trying to evade the, the question. But in the original language, it's like, yep, you have finally gotten to the truth. I agree with what you said. So he says, you have said so. And then he prophesies. Notice at the end here, they will strike him and say, prophesy, you Christ, who hit you? And uh, so here they're, he's already prophesying. Here's his prophecy. I tell you, from now on, you will find, you will, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is his prophecy towards them. Talk about a warning. So what Jesus says here, that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This has two references if you want to look it up. Psalm 110, verse 1, and also Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Those are two very pivotal Old Testament texts that you want to at least to kind of be familiar with. Then the high priest tore their clothes, and the high priest did, and he, he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Now notice they don't actually um, conspire. They don't make the verdict until the sun rises. Then we'll see that in chapter 27, verse 1, just a little bit below. But here they already said, He deserves death. And so they use the time in this twilight before it's officially morning when the sun comes up. They use it to, to mock him. They, they spit in his face and they strike him and they slap him. And they say, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The ironic thing, as I just said, is that he just did prophesy that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power and he'll come again. This is the face of God. This is the face of God that they are striking. And, you know, this is the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, but it's really all of us. In a sense, we have struck the face of God, and we deserve death, not this one. But he comes. He comes to make atonement for us. He comes to pay what we can't pay, our own ransom. And so in the sadness of all of this, we can remember that that he was allowed to be uh, smitten, struck, afflicted for us, and that he will have a victory and he will divide the spoils with us. That's thinking of things from Isaiah chapter 53. All right, well, it's heavy stuff, but it leads to this. We'll end with a Psalm 32. This is a Psalm of David after he had sinned and repented uh, this great sin that he committed with Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah and against his nation, against his God. And after he had repented by the grace of God, he wrote Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against those, against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And the Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4, the blessing of God granting righteousness to all those who trust in Jesus. And he makes this direct connection between what Jesus is, is doing for us in suffering for us and, and the forgiveness that flows from that. So we can rejoice. Um, even though our hearts are heavy because we are sinners, we can rejoice because Christ makes us righteous. We are not covered by our sins, but by the righteousness of, of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right. Well, been a little bit long-winded today. Thank you for sticking in with me today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.